Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And since we are talking about giggles today, Marcel, I want you to tell me about something that has made you giggle lately in the sorting chat. I want to tell you about these two students of mine who are so smart and so silly. They are the classic definition of silly girls, and I love them. (laughs) And Neil, friend of the pod, former frequent guest, was their instructor last semester. And sometimes we'll just, like, talk about how silly and smart they are and how they, like, oh, they're just, they are such a delight. I just adore them. And so while they do not themselves make me giggle, they giggle so much. And it is just a ray of sunshine in this otherwise very bleak semester. So I want to tell you about them. And I did. (laughs) Oh, look, they do make me giggle. I'm giggling right now. (laughs) Yeah, they do. That immediately made me think about the student who I had the last semester that I taught before my sabbatical. I had this student who was very, very quiet and very like she was consistently attending she just really didn't talk in class and i was doing like little one-on-ones with students just to be like how's the class going is there anything that like i could be doing more or less of and she was like i think it would be helpful if you laughed more the context here is that i laugh constantly in class so she (laughs) says very seriously i think it would be helpful if you laughed more and then she went (laughs) (laughs) it's like incredible (laughs) i love it what a silly goose what a silly goose i love a i love a giggle i love a good giggle a little a little teehee i make myself laugh constantly in class and I'm pretty sure that this turns some students like way off of me as an instructor. <laughs> but the ones who stick around, they get it. <laughs> I have really like at this point fully given up any attempt at like a serious teaching persona. And now I'm just like the big gay clown who's teaching your class. <laughs> oh, do, do, do. <laughs> Publishing. <laughs> oh, that's how Cohen walks. <laughs> Sorry, now I'm just giggling about my kids. <laughs> ah. All right, that's enough. That's enough of that. Let's get serious. We're getting very silly today, but before we dissolve into giggles, we should probably lay a little groundwork in revision. Today's conversation is about laughter, but more specifically, it's about a certain kind of laughter that's coded towards certain kinds of bodies, especially feminized and disabled bodies. So let's brush up a bit on textual representations of gender and disability. We've looked at the ways in which some bodies are represented as non-normative, 
and the ways that these texts in particular encourage us to view that non-normativity with suspicion, from the coding of Lupin's werewolfism as HIV-AIDS to the transcoding of Rita Skeeter to the fatness of the Dursleys. Mm-hmm. And, of course, these representations have an ideological force that comes from claiming the right to decide who is and is not, quote-unquote, normal, and producing knowledge about those who are non-normative or othered. In this case, you know, when we're talking about the Harry Potter series, narrative knowledge, and that knowledge then in turn reinforces the naturalness of, again, natural, everything's in scare quotes here, the (laughs) naturalness of binaries like good and bad, gay and straight, able-bodied and disabled, normal and not normal. And recognizing the ideological force of these character representations leads to some interesting questions about the relationship between agency and ideology. That is to say, we need to distinguish between the ideological bent of the book, or the author, versus the perspective of the characters. And as we've argued many times about the Harry Potter series, What we, the reader, can see is focalized through the perspective of Harry himself, with the notable exception of, like, a a few tiny chapters. Yeah, yeah, like those really weird chapters where all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, I can see from the sky. Why? I can see from the sky. That's why I was like, why are you suddenly a drone? I don't understand. But the rest of the time we're very clearly inside Harry's head. Mm -hmm. And, of course, naturalizing the perspective of our white male protagonist as the neutral perspective is itself pretty ideologically charged as a narrative choice. We discussed that way back in our first episode on Chosen One Narratives. Oh, remember? We were so young back then. We were so young. But knowing that Harry's narration is neither neutral nor fully reliable lets us ask some more specific questions about how Harry himself is describing the world around him and, of course, what he's leaving out which is like the whole premise of Marcel's devastating fun facts, that there's all kinds of stuff happening around the edges of these stories that we don't find out because they aren't happening (laughs) to or near Harry. (laughs) And like none of them are fun like roller skates. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I'm like this. Anyway, part of how we can question Harry's perspective is by noting places where it doesn't match up with the in-text reality. So for example... In book three, Harry describes Sirius as sneering at Harry's parents' death. But of course, Sirius didn't. He's their best friend. And he wouldn't. That is clearly an interpretation that Harry applies to Sirius based on his incorrect belief that Sirius killed his parents. So we, the reader, were following along. We also think Sirius killed his parents. And then all of a sudden, we learn otherwise. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... Harry's queer-coded descriptions of Rita Skeeter and Gilderoy Lockhart become homophobic and transphobic when it becomes clear to us that these characters are villains and that Harry was right not to trust them. Mm Mm-hmm. So, with this groundwork established, there's a new aspect of Harry's perspective that we are anxious to unpack— And lucky for us, we have an exciting guest who's ready to help us do just that. Mm, Like Pandora's box. Let's open it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Theory is no laughing matter. So everyone keep a straight face as we head into transfiguration class. We have another thrilling guest today. Dix McDevitt, pronouns she, her, is a self-identified chancer, which sometimes leads her to magical situations like this one and other times actively damages her career, like the time she applied to be the production manager of the royal court when she was 19. Dick studied English literature at Cambridge University, graduating in 2022. Dix recently graduated from the Curious School of Puppetry and is taking the first steps towards starting her interdisciplinary, radically inclusive, and queer-as-fuck theater company, Anything That Moves. Welcome, Dix! Wow, welcome. Oh my god. Hi, guys. I... I'm just glowing to be here. I I sound sarcastic it's because I'm English. I really mean it. It's okay. It's okay. I have enough English friends to understand that you just have to really you got to get really granular to parse the emotions. You've got to have a thick skin and just I would say take everything the kindest way. It just makes life nicer. Mm. I would say just if people are trying to be sarcastic with you, take the compliment. <laughs> I mean, I will take that feedback, but there's you will never convince a Pisces <laughs> to take things in the best possible way. That's not going to happen. See, I'm a Libra, so I'm very good at compartmentalizing. I'm very good at switching up, seeing things from different perspectives. I'm jealous. So let's talk about reading laughter in a text yeah so I've, I've dabbled before in reading laughter in novels and I learned from trying to do it once before that you have to get specific about what it is that you're trying to do because laughter is in practice very simple we all know how to do it it's something that pretty much to my knowledge uh, happens in every culture we learn to laugh before we learn to speak um, and often we don't even know why we're laughing uh, sometimes we laugh <laughs> story of my life uncontrollably <laughs> but as soon as you start thinking analytically about laughter it becomes uh, sort of semantic hellscape so I thought that I would simplify the close reading to follow with a framework so that we know what it is that we're not analyzing and we know what it is that we are analyzing does that sound good yeah that does yes. yeah it really does yes hey Marcel what does the word semantics mean oh, fuck you I <laughs> I think semantic is like the study of language and meaning. And so when you're talking about the semantics of something, you're talking about the way that the meaning is encoded in the words. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Still, though. Yeah. Fuck you. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I would have asked <laughs> dicks, but too, but too mean, so I could only direct it at you. Man, I escape of my life there. <laughs> Yeah. So when we're talking about the semantics of laughter, what kinds of categories are useful for us? 
So listen, the thing is, is that laughter essentially is quite mysterious. There have been umpteen attempts by your usual suspect dead white men philosophers <laughs> to make it really boring <laughs> and to try and pin it down theoretically. But fundamentally, as is clear from the many different schools of thought about laughter, it's not something that we can pin down with a with a stable cause or a stable mm-hmm. meaning. And so obviously what I'm about to say, there will be exceptions to it. And I'd encourage all, myself included to um, not be smart arsey about it yet because in terms of analysing it in a text, I think it's really helpful to distill it down to what I'm going to term laughter relationships, which is an entity that provides a stimulus and an entity that provides a laughter response to that stimulus. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And you know what? If you do want to be smart arsey about it and say that you laugh at yourself, say... I laugh when I'm alone. We can still use this framework because you are the entity providing the stimulus, maybe via a thought or a memory. Mm -hmm. And then you are also the entity providing the laughter response. Ah. So it works out. Okay. Okay. Um, So within the form of the novel, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This laughter relationship can occur on different levels of the storytelling, which is, I think, the main aspect that gets really confusing about talking about laughter within novels. I feel like this is one of those instances where we want to talk about diegetic and non-diegetic, and I can never remember the difference between those two things. I have a Johnny mnemonic for remembering diegetic versus non-diegetic which is diegetic is like dialogue so it's happening in the thing itself so like diegetic music in a movie is like dialogue it exists within the world of the movie okay non-diegetic is the opposite so it's not dialogue people can't hear it so like that's the score so if we take this idea of diegetic and non-diegetic and we apply it to laughter in the text is like diegetic laughter when two characters are laughing together and non and non-diegetic is when like i'm i'm the reader and i'm laughing so almost okay. pretty much yes okay and also by the way this is i've made up this framework possibly this uh, other people have talked about this as well um, i love that you're the theorist yeah yes, yes. Um, so yes, diegetic, as you said perfectly, it is within the world of um, the story. It is between two characters, but it's not necessarily two characters laughing together. It's just that the laughter relationship exists diegetically within the world. So the stimulus and the laughter response mm-hmm. both happen inside of the world of the novel or inside the world of the story Mm -hmm. and yes non-diegetic can it non-diegetic laughter relationships in a novel are pretty much always the 
reader providing the laughter response Mm -hmm. Um, but it can occur in a couple of different ways so I'll just take you through the four that I've dreamed up I'm sure there's more that other people can dream up we'll make a chart and then people can add to it I love a chart so diegetic number one the whole after relationship taking place inside the world of the novel it doesn't matter whether the reader laughs or not Mm. number two semi-diegetic now that's a controversial word I think some film buffs are going to come after me. I'm going to wake up with Neil uh, yeah, knocking Neil. at my door. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, no. pounding at your door. He would never. Yeah. <laughs> I'd tell you what Neil would do. He would go, huh. huh. Well, that well, that makes a lot of sense. That's what he would say. Matt, it's like he's here with us today. Um, so I'm calling this one semi-diegetic. This laughter relationship is between a character within the world and the reader. The character provides a stimulus and the reader provides the laughter response. Maybe you don't laugh, but the the humor relationship being set up is between the character and the reader. So to give an example of this in the Harry Potter books, my favorite one is when Harry's trying to convince Snape that his nickname is Runel Waslip. Mm-hmm. Runel Waslip. Mm-hmm. Which is it's so funny. It's so funny. And it might be the one good joke JK Rowling's ever written. It's genuinely, objectively hilarious. And Snape doesn't laugh. It's not funny to him. It's not funny to him. And it's also not funny to Harry. Harry's not trying to be funny. He's actually trying to get himself out of quite a serious bind. But... The humor relationship there is because the reader has a relationship with Harry and they understand the backstory, as Harry does, mm-hmm. of why this occurrence has taken place. Mm-hmm. So that is what we're calling semi-diegetic. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for number three? So ready. Is it non-diegetic? Hey, yeah, it's non-diegetic. <laughs> Laughter relationship, part one, part Un, a stop French. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done French. So this is between a third person omniscient narrator and the reader. Now, as as you've mentioned, Hannah, J.K. Rowling's narrative voice is erratic, to put it kindly. Uh, there's there's not a particular pattern set up there with really why she sometimes just drops <laughs> drops Harry's perspective and and goes in wild directions. But one chapter that we can be fairly certain a drone chapter it's the it, it's one of the drone chapters yeah. is the first chapter mm-hmm. of the first book. Yes. Mm-hmm. We follow different characters. We see different scenes. We're not attached to anyone particularly. And so an example of this kind of laughter relationship between that style of narrative voice and the reader is the first line of the first chapter of the first book. Mr. How's it go? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they are perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It sets up a humorous tone but the tone 
um, is, you know, not readable to Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, that they, you know, they're just living their lives. This humour is between that narrator and between the reader. It's a joke made by the narrator at the character's expense for the reader. Yeah, and I think actually that's a great legacy of the of the novel form because you do mm-hmm. get a lot of a lot of these third person omniscient nar- narrators as the novel form develops. I feel like this is really Austenian. Like yeah, Austen yeah. does this a lot. Yeah, totally. Dickens in a Christmas carol also there's a lot of like not that there's anything particularly dead about doornails, but yeah, it's the whole like the narrator is a kind of character and so like makes jokes sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. So that's number three. Um, although we don't, it doesn't occur that often in these books, I would say, just because of the fact that J.K. Rowling, maybe if she'd carried on in that vein, she could have created a, a stable narrative voice, but nope it just got dropped in the bin number four non-diegetic laughter relationship part de between the author and reader direct okay how 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 How? (laughs) obviously we have to differentiate between the narrative voice and the author so it's not Mm -hmm. through the prose itself or any particular voice that we encounter in the novel that is providing the stimulus rather it is other more meta aspects to the work that create a wink nudge relationship between the author and the reader so Mm -hmm. this often shows up in terms of structure and can reveal itself humorously through devices such as dramatic irony, mm-hmm. which can transcend the cognizance of even the narrative voice, the order in which mm. we see things. And in plays, for example, visual gags that occur can provide humorous content. But actually in the Harry Potter books, I think that the most common form of the author-reader laughter relationship is in puns and wordplay that are Mm -hmm. entirely their their comedic values entirely ignored by the narrative voice and by the characters in the world and so therefore is sort of a direct line of humor from jk rowling to the reader so for example the fact that the school's called hogwarts and no one ever goes <laughs> and no Ugh. one's like sorry what <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> and many other aspects including character names which obviously many of them are incredibly offensive and incredibly racist mm. and incredibly just terrible just very very poorly done but are also in again a Dickensian fashion supposed to say something about the character that is Mm -hmm. never referred to by any of the characters. I mean, Remus Lupin turns out to Mm -hmm. get bitten by a werewolf. Imagine if you called your kids Remus Lupin. (laughs) And and then then you're surprised that they get bitten by a werewolf. Come on. I mean... (laughs) 
a member of the Lupin family. So are we to assume that he is the first one to whom this tragedy is? But we're like, does everybody in the Lupin family have some sort of wolf-related run-in? Or was it just them doubling down with the first name Remus? Does he have a twin brother named Romulus who we've never met? Was Romulus eaten by wolves when he was a child and it just doesn't come up? Because <laughs> it's not part of Harry's journey. <laughs> part of Harry's journey. <laughs> I like to think that he changed his name after he got bitten because he's just like, might as well lean into it, you know, (laughs) come this far. Remus Lupin is his drag name. That's incredible. I just love, I love everything about the implications of that. I feel like that needs to be a whole episode in and of itself. (laughs) I'm going to be writing some fan fiction about that. Good. So, those are the four laughter relationships. The main ones that I think crop up when you're thinking about laughter in in novels in particular. And for us today, we're going to narrow down to diegetic laughter relationships. So the very first one, stimulus and laughter response, both occurring inside of the world. So it's not about pinpointing any aspect of the book that is intended or otherwise to make the reader laugh. Many of these things are funny in and of themselves, but actually what we're doing is we are looking at the entire exchange rather than partaking in it. Which is useful. Like, I mean, both both the sort of specificity of this terminology, but also like sometimes as much as I love thinking about reader reaction, sometimes readers are so unbelievably, like it's so hard to talk about what's funny to a reader Mm -hmm, because reading mm -hmm. is such a profoundly subjective experience. But we can definitely say things about what's written in the text, (laughs) which is part of why we love close reading so much. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's actually perfect because that brings me on to my sort of final the aspect, the really important aspect to this close reading of the text, which is that we are not going in the vein of all the humour theorists that have come before in terms of trying to pinpoint why people laugh, what their laughter means in any kind of objective sense. That is a rabbit hole that other people can go down. I'm not I'm not enticed by it whatsoever because in these texts, what we have is a unreliable narrator who is oftentimes himself, sometimes he is the stimulus, but oftentimes Mm. he's actually Mm -hmm. not inside the laughter relationship in question. He is observing it and he is interpreting it and reading it and communicating it to the reader. So what we're seeing often is not just a laughter relationship. What we're seeing is Harry's perspective of a laughter relationship, which is really, really Mm -hmm. important because the ways that he reads those relationships tell us a lot about him and they tell us a lot about how he understands and values the other characters in the books. Okay. Yeah. I'm convinced. I'm totally convinced. And I feel like I'm like really ready to dive in and look at some examples of laughter in these books. Let's do it.
Hey, Marcel. Yes, Hannah. Did you know that someone in this Zoom call is an owl in disguise? Oh my God, who? It's you, obviously. <gasps> it's time for owls. That was really funny, Hannah. Thanks. That was so funny. Thanks. I stole that joke from my friend Bart, who sometimes listens. So, Bart, if you hear this, <laughs> thanks. All right. There are so many examples in this book series of the kinds of laughter relationships that we're not talking about that I want to talk about. And so I just want to start this section by naming that I'm going to try really hard to stay focused on the diegetic laughter relationships. Good. And specifically, I think we're going to be narrowing in on Harry's fucking problem with giggling. What's your fucking problem, Harry? <laughs> giggling should be made illegal is a real thing, he says. <laughs> it's so funny. Ah, uh. so <laughs> So what's the deal, Dix, with Harry? Why does he think giggling should be made illegal? This is the question. This is the question of all questions. That line is like it's a jokey line. Yes. So I think this is a really helpful, a really helpful moment to put into practice what we were talking about, about how how to get out of the quagmire of the semantics of laughing and how to focus in on just one of those relationships. Because this line itself, giggling should be made illegal, Harry thought furiously. If you take the line as it is at face value, you could start going down the road of trying to think, is that a laughter relationship between the mm -hmm. narrator and the reader? But J.K. Rowling's narrative voice is sort of like a fly that buzzes around Harry's head and can sometimes hear his thoughts. But I think, you know, that this is a helpful example of that because actually the way that this line is relevant to the conversation that we're having is that this is Harry's response to having witnessed a, a diegetic laughter relationship, which is him as the stimulus walking down the corridors mm -hmm. and this the the girls, the 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 hydra of unnamed anonymous girls in a haze silly girls, silly girls around him <laughs> mm -hmm. who are giggling. <laughs> So this is his reading of that relationship. Okay, so because we're talking about giggling, do we want to spend some time talking about the other types of laughter that we hear so that we can kind of separate out why giggling is distinct for Harry? Like, he doesn't want to make, for example, sneering illegal. He at no point suggests that chuckling should be a crime. No, but even though he is the object of a significant amount of sneering. I I would like to see a chart that compares the two, but that's for another time. Yes, that is a really good point. So, I mean, I don't know if it's just me that it really jumped out this lexicon JK Rowling has for descriptors for laughter. It's re it really is very prominent to me in her writing style. Um, these words that come up again and again, sneering, roaring, chuckling, chortling, all of these things. It's quite bizarre. And I think all of those words, as all the words ever, 
obviously communicate things to us. <laughs> that's what words. That's do. what words are up to. That's their whole. That's their whole <laughs> thing. But I, I would say that there isn't a synonym for laughing or a, or a, a subcategory of laughter that Harry defines with a choice of words that so clearly demarcates the way that he feels about the person enacting it because Mm -hmm. certainly Ron does his fair share of sneering and certainly Harry has moments where he is he is sneering at other characters. He is being quite unkind. He is making contemptuous comments towards them. Does sneering even mean laughing? Yeah, yeah. Sneering might not be like overt laughter, but it certainly is like a form of mocking alongside some of the other language you've pulled out here. So so if sneering is a thing that we see both protagonists and antagonists do in the series that suggests that it's not as stably coded as like as as giggling is because giggling does seem to be really stably coded now when i think about giggling in this series i think about girls i mean i think about book 4 especially which is giggle filled i think about the mm-hmm. attempts to ask girls out and how they're always giggling i think about like lavender I mm-hmm. guess in book three, there's also quite a lot of giggling, isn't there? Because, mm-hmm. like, Lavender and Parvati, are they the ones who are, like, always giggling in mm-hmm. divination? Now, this is interesting. It's really interesting that that's in your mind, because I've, let me tell you, I've done some key searching of all the books. And book three, Parvati and Lavender basically don't giggle. In book three. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Because most of the times that we are exposed to Parvati and Lavender in book three is in divination. And divination. They're so serious. They're serious about divination. They're not giggling during that class. You know who is giggling? Harry and Ron. But it doesn't use the word giggling, (gasps) does it? It uses it once, but Ron in the whole series. Our one hero who giggles once is Ron. He's in a, a fit of silent giggles in divination. Oh but often in those divination classes, Harry and Ron are described as quote unquote stifling laughter or mm. chortling, smirking, mm-hmm. anything other than giggling. And Harry never describes himself as giggling throughout the entire series. Not once. Doesn't happen. No. That makes so much yeah. sense. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's wild that I remembered them as giggling. Well, this is really interesting because they do, they giggle so much that this suggests that even the scenes in which they are serious, we as readers have become so accustomed to them giggling that we remember them as giggling even when they're not. Yeah, exactly. And also, that actually in this book, Ron is described as giggling as much as they are. I think there's one reference to them giggling in that book. But Ron giggles once, they giggle once in that book. But we remember them as giggly. I mean, they're described as giggling in many other books a lot. So that's part of the Mm -hmm. reason. But also, I think because... 
within that context of the divination class, it is a context that is silly. Mm -hmm. It is presented to us as a silly context. The people and the women that we are encouraged to trust, aka Hermione and McGonagall, Mm -hmm. have a lot of contempt for this subject. They dismiss it. And so it's almost like a kind of weird double negative where in that space, the people who aren't taking it seriously are the serious characters, whereas the characters who are taking it seriously are the silly characters. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I just It just really locked into my brain how all of those scenes are basically like straight white men making fun of women particularly women of color for liking Mm. divinatory practices and it just made me so mad yeah it just made me me so as i remember every time that a man has been like "Ugh, do we have to talk about astrology again and i'm like we talk about your fake things all the time Time. Why does your why does your <laughs> fake thing need to be get to be a thing that we take yeah. seriously? And my fake thing, you roll your eyes at. <laughs> you can take courses on your fake thing at university. Thank it's you. called economics. Yes. I listened to you talk about fucking your keto diet for half an hour. You can listen to me talk about my rising sun. Exactly. 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 Ron giggles once. Yeah. How many other men giggle, according to your searches? Yes, my search. Well, actually, asterisk, Ron does giggle again. I should say that this is the only time he giggles when he is of, quote unquote, sound mind. <gasps> ah, ah he giggles five. under the influence. Yeah. It's when they're in the, the Ministry of Magic and... It's not very clearly written, but he gets hit with some kind of spell and he can't stop giggling Okay. Mm-hmm. in this really inappropriate okay. mm-hmm. setting where they're all fearing for their lives. And Harry asks, mm-hmm. what's wrong with Ron? And the word used to describe his tone is fearfully. The fact that Ron is giggling in this situation is, is really sinister to Harry. Okay. Which, to be fair, you know, it, it is a bit weird. But as you as you are pointing out, he is hit with that spell from a Death Eater. So this is this is a curse. He's been he's giggling due to a curse. It's a curse. A curse and a crime. It's a curse and a crime. And that links to something else I found, which blew my mind, which is also in book five, when they're in St. Mungo's. And Harry is reading the floor plan <gasps> for the different wards in St. Mungo's. Let oh me read my God. you one. It is bonkers. The ward for plant poisoning. And it just lists rashes, regurgitation, uncontrollable giggling, etc. <laughs> Third floor. <laughs> oh, so giggling is really linked to lack of control. Yes massively mm-hmm. absolutely oh my god they describe it as a fit of giggles mm-hmm. a fit you have a fit yeah. yeah when you're having some kind of yeah. like mental health breakdown oh my god yeah 
And it is also, I would say, really, really linked with hysteria as well, which is Mm -hmm. in and of itself uh, an incredibly gendered (laughs) phenomenon in the way that it, well, in the way that it's been used to, oh, what's it been used to do? Control feminized people's bodies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, there is this this element of volatility to it, of uncontrollability. And this is a really important point because what all of these examples dance around is that Harry, the patterns that keep occurring across the series is that Harry is associating giggling with... A couple of different things, but these couple of different things, as all things do, intersect at points. So those things are a, a certain brand of femininity that generally is either threatening to him or I wouldn't even say threatening. I would say illegible to him, actually. Mm. Mm. You got a double mm. <laughs> Double, mm. Oh. Mm. it's a something he perceives as a language between these the anonymous girls around him I mean some obviously there are a couple that he knows their names but for the most part he doesn't seem to know the names of any of the girls who go to Hogwarts whatsoever this is amazing because the student body is like 20 people I know it is <laughs> it's entirely bizarre I find it totally bizarre but so he associates giggling with this brand of femininity and also with juvenility as well and I think already Mm. there's a massive Mm -hmm. overlap between that brand of femininity and his perception of juvenility but also that bracket can be used to explain why for example Hermione you know, she has a penchant to giggle in the first few books, but after book four, she doesn't so much. Mm-hmm. Whereas in book two, Lockhart times, mm. in book four, mm. Crumb times, you know, she giggles once or twice, but she she becomes she becomes serious. She she gets a control over this impulse as she matures. She does giggle at Ron actually a few times but her 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 interest in him is generally represented either as anger that Harry helps us interpret <laughs> or as a kind of like softening like right yes. that like he'll say something and she'll like look sort of like surprised or pleased or or something but like that that mm-hmm. giggling excited schoolgirl crush energy is something she like grows out of mm-hmm. yeah I think that's that's really true I think that I mean that in itself could be I'm sure it's something that some fans online have, have written epics about yeah so so you have this aspect of juvenility to it as well which is also why you have one or two instances well just the one actually of run giggling of sound mind but still when they're pretty young in the books um because Young boys can engage in that behaviour, I would argue, before a sort of romantically charged bifurcation of the, of course, Mm. only two stable genders 
I hope you got from my tone. I enjoyed your, your, your bro voice. I think I think it's also <laughs> worth noting that divination class is this like dangerously feminized space. Yeah. That it is like mm. it is run mm-hmm. by a woman. It obviously appeals more to women, but it's also like like it's very womb like. It's always very warm in there. It's draped in fabrics. It's like There's incense. They pour tea. It's like an aggressively feminized space that you can almost think like the giggling's almost sort of something that happens to them as a result of being in this this bad this bad lady room. Mm. Yeah, totally. I want to ask you guys a question because because Dix in in your notes you describe giggling as abject or as an abject kind of laughter mm. and so I want to I want to talk Hannah could you define yeah what the word abject means for the listeners yeah absolutely so the abject is a phrase I believe coined or at least theorized most explicitly by Julia Kristeva um, who is a a feminist sort of psychoanalyst who worked around the same time as Hélène Cizou, so sort of mid-20th century theorist. And her concept of the abject was the kind of things that our bodies do that challenge our sense of ourselves as discrete and self-contained subjects. So that as part of our sort of development into, you know, thinking, acting, mentally functioning, because this is linked to madness, right? So a part of our development into mm-hmm, subjects mm-hmm. is that we sort of create these barriers around ourselves that are like, here is me and here is what's not me. But there's this problem where mm-hmm. our bodies are constantly like leaking and oozing all of these things that aren't us mm-hmm. and that remind us that our bodies mm-hmm. are like not quite as stable as we would like them to be. And one of the points that Kristeva makes mm-hmm. is that the abject is particularly affiliated with feminized bodies because Mm -hmm. like it's linked to like breast milk and menstrual blood and like the sort of particular things that feminized bodies ooze. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So abjection is kind of like your body producing something disgusting in a way that like at a deeper level sort of challenges our whole concept of like autonomy and self-containedness. Um, so objection is, is often linked to madness. Beautifully articulated, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you. So, so yeah, it's interesting to think about giggling as abject because it's this thing that like, like disgustingly emerges from women's bodies and causes horror to the men around and causes horror and like causes horror for Harry in particular. But it is also linked, as you have pointed out, Dex, it is also linked to like a kind of pervasive ableism through the series. So can we talk about that a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So this first became apparent to me when after noticing how gendered giggling was obviously then I was thinking well what are the instances in which uh, characters who are men or (laughs) in (laughs) 
in Dobby's case, I guess a man. <laughs> so Dobby is a male character who giggles. Yes, he is. But Dobby's erratic and unstable. Absolutely. And also as well, I would I would argue as well that there is a lot that codes Dobby as disabled, especially in the second book. This idea that he left his own devices just harms himself, mm. that he doesn't know what's best for him, that yes. he is out of control, all of these things. Right. Um, and that that's a pattern that recurs with most of the instances in which men giggle in this series, which is that it's a marker of a perceived simplicity of mind on Harry's part. So other men who giggle within the series, um, I think very significantly are Morphin, Voldemort's uncle, is described as giggling from Harry's perspective of this memory that we have of the scene. So we've got two layers of interpretation happening here. Uh, but the, the final one that we're given is Harry's perception, which is Morphin giggling. And Morphin is very emphatically coded as mentally disabled in some way. For um, sure. Yeah. And we also get an instance of Amicus, the Death Eater, giggles a couple of times. And I couldn't believe the way that J.K. Rowling <laughs> described, <laughs> described this line. A lumpy looking man with an odd lopsided leer gave a wheezy giggle. So, there's so much happening in that sentence to be like, a bad man who was bad did a bad sound badly. So here we have again, the giggle representing a, a perceived simplicity of mind from Harry's part and also a sinister lack of control mm -hmm. from that character. Mm. Again, a sense of volatility and also the, the fearfulness of somebody laughing in an inappropriate setting, which I would argue is something that is also coded as the behavior of somebody who is mentally disabled. So giggling is like it's almost always threatening and it's consistently feminized and linked to characters coded as mentally disabled in a way that links back to the history of hysteria and the way that mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. mental disability and mental instability are themselves historically deeply feminized. So all of this leads me to mm -hmm. a question, mm -hmm. which is, Ooh. does Bellatrix Lestrange giggle? Drum roll. <laughs> no, Bellatrix Lestrange doesn't giggle once in these books, which is fascinating hmm. because she em embodies this trifecta. She is... Uh, a girly pops. Uh, she, <laughs> she is emphatically juvenile from Harry's perspective, but I think also she she exhibits some behaviours. I mean, when she's taunting Harry after killing Sirius, mm -hmm. she's described as using a mock baby voice, which is yeah. so sinister. Makes me very it's really it's icky. so it's icky. really icky. 
it's really really icky and also is very much coded as mentally unstable however she doesn't ever giggle she does other things she shrieks she cackles she screams with laughter but she doesn't giggle which led me to start thinking about giggling in a slightly different way because while I agree that it is a threatening entity to Harry in the books generally Mm -hmm. I don't think it's mortally threatening Mm. to him either in terms of his safety sort of physical safety against evil or his the safety of his masculinity in the romantic and sexual arena either because fundamentally the women in his life aren't the gigglers he likes women who are not like other girls in a really really annoying way jk Cho might be surrounded by girls who are giggling but Cho herself does not giggle yes and also when he asks parvati to the ball she giggles and he hates it but when he sees her and she's all dressed up he says that she's looking quite pretty and she's not giggling that's good isn't it look at that that is good so giggling is a thing that is marked as like untrustworthy and unsavory from Harry's perspective but it's not like actively dangerous in the sense that gigglers are not serious threats or threats to serious mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. exactly what giggling time and time again demonstrates from Harry's perspective what it demarcates is the characters that Harry is dismissing in some way Mm. and he might be dismissing them because he thinks that they're bad and wrong or he might be dismissing them just because he thinks they're silly and he doesn't think they're worth his attention and worth his time in the case of Parvati Mm -hmm. and Lavender who are in this actually I think brings it round to how the trivial version of him dismissing these girls in his year Uh, because they're silly and they giggle a lot. Actually, it comes around at the end of the books in a way that makes me so upset and so angry, which is that in the final book, we see Lavender being attacked by Fenrir Greyback, and she's lying Mm -hmm. there lifeless, and we don't find out whether she lives or not. That's not mentioned. And so... Because she's not serious she's she's not a serious character she's not a serious part of harry's world exactly but she was in dumbledore's army she was in his year group for seven years he six years he lived with her in this space but Mm -hmm. ultimately entirely dismissed her to the point that if we're to take these books as we are forced to take them as harry's journey then whether or not Lavender Brown is dead is not an important part of his journey to him, which I think is really profound and quite upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a, and a reminder of what's at stake when we have these kinds of conversations, that, that this brings us back to the ideological force of narrative, that, that something as small as a word mm-hmm. choice like giggle versus laugh or chuckle 
signifies that some characters are the ones that we worry about whether they live or die and other ones are not. And that actually, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, has real world ramifications for whose lives we think are the lives that need to be attended to and whose are not. Absolutely. Is it owls if we don't end on a bummer? (laughs) By which I mean... Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, come hang out with us at Please on Instagram or Twitter, and of course, on Patreon at patreon.com slash please, where you can get all kinds of exclusive perks and follow along with our journey as we figure out what's next for the Witch, Please team. Don't do social media? No worries. We have a newsletter to keep you in the loop for all of our adventures. You can sign up at our website, ohwitchplease.ca. Dix, if people want more of you, where can they where can they get you? You can find me on Instagram. My handle is dixie.mcdevitt, D-I-X-I-E dot M-C-D-E-V-I-T-T. Find me on there. I'm pretty funny and I'm doing all sorts of stuff. I write things. Basically, I'm unemployed. Please give me a job. Anybody who's got jobs to give, give one to Dix. Which Please is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca, which is, of course, expanding every day thanks to the brilliant Gabby, who we've decided has been around long enough to merit her own sound effect. And we asked her what it is, and she said that it is... You can always find transcripts and merch and sign up for our newsletter. Again, ohwitchplease.ca. It's fun. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach, to our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, and to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me purring in your lap, because I love you. <laughs> Thanks this week. <laughs> Thanks this week to Valerius, JKA, Hannah Lisa D, Marty Bokey, Marty Becky, maybe? Marty Becky, Sign GT. Lotix Cats and Owls, Ella Loves Cheesecake, God bless you, Ella, and Pick Pack Pock, or Pick Pack POC. We'll be back next episode to add to the appendices. But until then, later, witches.